Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, there is only really one fact that you need to demonstrate to show that Christianity is true. Not a hundred facts, just one. And what fact would that be? That fact would be the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. If you could show that that really is a fact, that Jesus rose from the dead after predicting that he would rise from the dead and and that he actually did claim to be God and the resurrection was a vindication of his claim, then Christianity is true. You can boil everything we do in Christian apologetics down to one thing, and that is the resurrection of Jesus. Because if that really occurred, Christianity is true. Because Jesus, therefore, is God, and whatever he teaches is true. And Jesus taught that the Old Testament was reliable, it was the Word of God, and he promised the New Testament. So everything really hinges on the resurrection. Now, I typically give evidence that God exists, because when you give evidence that God exists, then resurrections are possible. If God exists, resurrections are possible. But you can also argue the other way. You could say that a resurrection is evidence for God, and that's what my friend Dr. Gary Habermas has made his life's work the resurrection of Jesus. And it's always a pleasure having Gary on because he is the world-renowned expert on the resurrection. He studied this topic more than anyone else. He is in the middle right now of writing a probably a 5,000-page magnum opus on the resurrection. He's taught for many years at Liberty University. He is distinguished research professor there. He's written several books. We'll get into some of them today. And what we're going to do today is talk to Gary about some of the more odd objections to the resurrection, some of the off-the-wall objections to the resurrection. And if you want to learn more about all this, you can take a course that Gary is teaching for us here at, uh, at our ministry. And the resurrection course we ran a couple of years ago, Gary is about to run it again with us. And you can actually ask him questions live via Zoom video if you take the course. We'll tell you more about that a little bit later. But first, Gary, how are you, my friend? Frank, I'm doing well. And boy, I agree with everything you say. You're very persuasive. I'm almost believing in the resurrection myself. (laughs) Well, Gary, you and I were talking over the phone the other day, and you were telling me, about what you've been doing for the past three years. Just just give our our listeners a, a minute or so on what's been going on in your life for the past three years. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I didn't write dates down, and I should have, but I had a number of friends, and you were probably one of them, who encouraged me maybe starting five years ago to put some of my resurrection studies in print so that when I'm no longer on this earth, um, the books can live on and the answers can be sought. And I thought, well, you know, I I don't want to do this for the last 10 years of my life. There's other things I'd rather do. But but uh, I thought and thought and thought, and I, and I 
you know, I try to evaluate everything in terms of ministry, the amount of people that might be helped, and I thought, well, try to beat this, because if the resurrection is what you just said, and everything else follows, you know, why shouldn't I? So I jumped in, and I'm on about page 4,400 today. I'm estimating I have four or 500 pages to go, and then, of course, the incredible job of editing comes into play. That's sort of like doing your income tax. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have to do it a second time for the publisher when they edit it. So it, I'm not looking forward to it. I try not to think about the future because it's disheartening when I think about the workload. I usually work every week when I'm in town, 70 to 80 hours a week by the clock. And But it's very, very slow. I worked the other day, Frank, for... Um, I think I put about eight or nine hours on this manuscript, eight or nine hours of my day, and I wrote one page. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, multiply that times 5,000 and you get a, get a taste of the workload. That's the way it goes. Well, people who, who don't write books, one thing you need to understand is when you're writing, you're not just writing, you're researching, and that's why it can take you eight or nine hours to write yeah. one page. You know, the yeah, other day... I'm. Yeah. That day I, I was, but usually I don't because I do. I like you said, I live in resurrection, so I just uh-huh. type. But you still have to dig the sources out of the file cabinet and pull the books off the shelf and do the endnotes, and yeah, it's it's painstaking. You know, the other day I, I was writing something. I actually I put seven words down uh, that day, and I was lamenting it. And my buddy of mine said, "Well, seven words isn't so bad." I said, "Yeah, but I don't even know what order those seven words should be." Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh yeah. That, that's about, that's the it. kind of progress I made, Gary. Yeah, and then when you when you shut it down for today and open it tomorrow, you rethink the seven words and put them in a different order. <laughs> that's right. Well, you are covering the waterfront on the resurrection. You're covering every possible objection. You're covering what uh, people like David Hume have said about it and others and even modern day skeptics you're dealing with the old testament you're dealing with the yep. new testament you're dealing with uh, non-biblical writers you're dealing with i mean you're covering the waterfront in what's going to be about a 5000 page magnum opus and what i thought i'd love to do in this session with you Gary is just throw some of the more off the wall objections to the resurrection we'll We'll, we'll we'll throw a couple of common ones at you, but some of the off the wall objections, and let's just have a conversation. I, I think it'll be fun. One thing I want to bring up right off the top, and I'd, I'd like to get your two minute response to this, Gary. Frequently, when you bring up the resurrection, atheists and skeptics will say things like, "Well, look, anything is more possible than a resurrection. Anything is more possible. So anything I can come up with will will, will be more possible or more plausible than a resurrection." What would you say to somebody who said that? Well, I mean, I would go in one of two or three directions. And the first thing I'd say to them is, am I guessing you're a naturalist? Do you believe the natural world is all there is? And usually the response is yes. And then I'll say, okay, fine. What you just did was read your worldview back to me, because in a naturalistic world, there's no supernatural. So, of course, anything is more likely than a miracle, because there's no God and no miracle and no supernatural. But since you are assuming your worldview and reading it back to me as if it's gospel truth, why don't we take a time out here so that before you ask me to try to prove the resurrection, you need to first prove naturalism to me, or you don't have an objection. Mm -hmm. In other words, 
if naturalism is not true, your objection is fruitless. Most of, I mean, most likely. So why don't you first tell me two things? How do you know there's no God? And number two, how do you know the philosophy of naturalism is true? And usually the conversation stops there because you can't prove there's no God. Even Bertrand Russell said, I wouldn't say anything stupid, so stupid as I could prove God doesn't exist. Um, so, so you're not going to prove God doesn't exist. And secondly, how do you know naturalism is right? It's very, very difficult. The second move I often make is to say, depends on how provocative I feel. <laughs> the, the second one I think is, all right, so you don't believe in the supernatural. No, I don't. Okay, well, time out. Have you ever heard of near-death experiences? Because near-death experiences are so common, so powerful, and over 300 documented cases now of evidential ones. I tell people, in a recent study, uh, about 30 million people in a recent study, North America, England, and Europe, have claimed to have had near-death phenomena. If that's true, I'm, I'm obviously being fancy here, but if that's true, 30 million people have, quote-unquote, been to Narnia or been to Middle Earth or followed the yellow brick road to the Emerald City. In other words, 30 million people have claimed to have seen and been in another world. They could be wrong. They could all be wrong. But there could be another world. And if there's another world, you have to be open to something I'm saying about that other world, i.e. resurrection. That could expand your horizon. Absolutely. We're talking to my friend Dr. Gary Habermas. We're talking about some of the objections to the resurrection. He's the world-renowned expert on it. And we're going to throw some more objections at him right after the break. You're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. We're back in two minutes. Thank you for listening to the Cross-Examine podcast. This material is made available to you for free by the contributions of listeners like you. If you wish to support future podcasts, just go to crossexamine.org and click on the Donate button, or simply use the Donate feature directly on our app. Thanks. If you're low on the FM dial, down on the radio low, you're looking for NPR, go no further. We're actually going to tell you the truth here. That's our intent anyway. You're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. You're never going to hear evidence for the resurrection on NPR, but you will hear it here because the evidence is very good and the objections against it are very bad. And my friend Dr. Gary Habermas is the top guy in the world on the resurrection, teaches at Liberty University, He's written several amazing books on the topic, I'm looking at a couple of them on my shelf right now. One is called The Historical Jesus. That's from 1996. Another one's called The Risen Jesus and Future Hope, a more recent work. And then a book he wrote with Dr. Michael Kona, also called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. Uh, and Gary is also working right now as we speak on his magnum opus. He has several other books as well. He's written on other subjects like near-death experiences, which he just mentioned. He's written on The Shroud of Turin. He's written on... Uh, the issue of doubt. So Gary is not just about the resurrection. He's about these other issues as well. So he's a wealth of, of information. And much of what um, you can learn about uh, Gary, you can find on his website, GaryHabermas.com. GaryHabermas.com. And Gary is also teaching a premium course for us. Just go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses. He is going to teach the resurrection course, 15 hours of video. They're broken up into half-hour lessons. He covers the waterfront on the resurrection in this course, and the beautiful thing about the premium course is that 
on three different occasions, you will be live on Zoom video with Gary Habermas himself. You can ask him any question you want. You can interact with him. And on the other uh, uh, periods of the course, you'll be on with uh, the theologian, Dr. Michael Patton, who also helps us teach this resurrection course. So you're not going to want to miss this. Just go to uh, crossexamine.org, click on online courses, and the course, I think, begins March 11th. It begins March 11th, so you got time if you want to take the resurrection course with Gary Habermas. Now, Gary, before the break, you were saying, okay, if somebody says anything's more plausible than a resurrection, you're going to challenge naturalism, and as you pointed out, you can't prove naturalism. <laughs> you, can't, you can't prove there's no God. And secondly, you might bring up near-death experiences, and these near-death experiences, Gary, we've talked about this on the podcast before, these are veridical, meaning they can be verified, Correct. Yes. In fact, one book has over 100 cases, and the only qualification to be in this book is that somebody other than you had to be able to uh, corroborate your story about what was seen. And sometimes there are several people who've corroborated it. And so I was just making the point that, that uh, according to this uh, survey, by the way, published a book a, a medical book on near-death experiences that some 30 million people claim to have had near-death experiences. So just because our naturalist friend who's asking the question uh, has never been to Narnia or Middle Earth or Oz, that doesn't mean there's no Narnia, Middle Earth, or Oz. And 30 million people, you know, many of those will tell you they've been in the other world. And you could say that's a bunch of baloney, but just because your belief doesn't allow it, that doesn't disallow their experience. And and when there's uh, data behind that they've experienced such a near-death experience, oftentimes in the presence of no measurable brain or heart activity, that, that's pretty evidential when your heart and brain, according to the best machines, they're not working. So I often use that like a, like a snow plow to get the snow out of the way so we can work on a, you know, dry piece of pavement. So we talk about resurrection without the person's going, yeah, but that doesn't happen. Yeah, but that doesn't happen over and over again, like a broken record. And they can't prove their worldview, first of all, and they can't disprove near-death experiences. So I think, I think they're, if they're really interested, they are in a position to deal with the resurrection data at that point. Yeah, and as you pointed out before, Gary, just so our listeners don't misunderstand, when you're talking about near-death experiences, you're not saying they prove or disprove Christianity. What you are saying is if they are true and they can be shown to be true because they're veridical, meaning that uh, an example might be somebody rises above their body and you know sees that there was an accident on 3rd in Maine uh, during the time of this operation, and... Right. Uh, it's verified that there really was an accident on third main and the patient couldn't know that because they were on the operating table at the time. Those are kind of veridical. What you're saying is, is that if any of these are true, it disproves naturalism. doesn't prove Christianity, but it disproves naturalism. Correct. Right, right, right. And, and you talk, you open up the program saying one of your areas of research is arguments for God's existence. Well, right. One of the arguments that so many folks uh, that do what you do, used is the Kalam cosmological argument. Well, sure. it came from Muslim philosophers. So I, I have I have a uh, Hare Krishna uh, PhD in physics in my file where the guy uses the cosmological argument. I, any These kind of arguments for God or afterlife or natural law, ethics, those are arguments that can be used by different religions. And a, a Buddhist and a Christian could stand shoulder to shoulder 
because all they're going after there are the naturalists. But why would they be doing that? Because naturalism, at least in the Western world, is the number one biggest uh, you know, philosophy in the world. Mm. So, mm. yeah, it does, these things don't prove Christianity, but they sure make you question naturalism. Now, what do you say? Because you hear this a lot, too, Gary, when it comes to the resurrection. They'll say, well, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And isn't, isn't it an extraordinary claim to say that Jesus rose from the dead? Don't you need extraordinary evidence for that? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, a great, that's a great question. And I, I would, again, I would, I would use a couple of comebacks. One, I would say, extraordinary evidence, maybe. I would ask for extraordinary evidence, too, if you were trying to uh, impress upon me the existence of the supernatural. But, impress, but extraordinary evidence doesn't mean that no evidence is ever enough. If you use ex, uh, extraordinary evidence as a watchword to keep you from ever looking at anything, then all it is an excuse for you to confirm a view that you hold, naturalism, which you can't prove. So I, I say, okay, good, good evidence is fine, but don't tell me we never reached that good stage. And, and secondly... Uh, I would say we have it. We have it. If you want to open up the door to the supernatural with either arguments for God, arguments for ethics, objective ethics, arguments for near-death experiences, i.e. an afterlife, Bertrand Russell, again, says the two uh, columns on which religion hangs are God and an afterlife. You can throw ethics in there, and if you've got those three, you're talking religion, um, there's great evidences for each of those. I would, I would dare somebody to take the NDE evidence alone and try to refute it. I mean, it is difficult. Not to mention intelligent design, fine-tuning. Mm. To sit there and say, you don't have any evidence for the supernatural, so don't talk to me, is just, to me, blind faith on behalf of naturalism. And it's, it amazes to me, these same people who use the word extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, they actually believe the universe came from nothing and by nothing. Well, that's an extraordinary claim for which they have no evidence. <laughs> right. I love C.S. Lewis, who says, uh, if there ever was a time when nothing existed, nothing would exist now. Or mm -hmm. Anthony Flew, the famous atheist who came to theism before he died, probably the best-known philosophical atheist in the world. And Flew said, I had to follow the evidence where it leads. And a couple of his questions were, why is there something instead of nothing, and where do the laws of nature come from? By the mm. way, his third argument was intelligent design, which makes a lot of people angry. But those three things, and he became a theist over it. So, right. Well, for those of you who don't know, uh, listening to us right now, I'm talking to uh, my friend Dr. Gary Habermas, who has debated some of the top atheists in the world, including... Dr. Anthony Flew, at least three or four times you've debated uh, uh, Dr. Flew, Gary, and he was the top of philosophical atheist of the last century, and you struck up quite a friendship with him, I and did. you brought him, I'll never forget this, Gary, it, it happened here in Charlotte, I think it was uh, the year 2000, and you were debating Anthony Flew, and John Ankerberg, I think was the, it was filmed for his program, and I think it was a... Uh, uh, a debate that he was the moderator of. And right. I remember after this debate, you and Anthony Flew were in the green room, and you came out of the green room, and you said this to me. You said, Anthony Flew just said to me, it's true what they're saying, Gary. I have no evidence for my position. Do you yeah, remember he, saying that? He said it to me like it just dawned on him. 
Yeah. I mean, I mean, he said it like it just struck him, and he said, the way he said it was really kind of cool. He goes, I've got no evidence for my position. <laughs> and I just couldn't believe he said I heard him, but I just couldn't believe he said that. So I said, what? And he repeated it. I don't have any evidence for my position. And so I think that's how we started this uh, broadcast. That's the issue with uh, naturalism. Big assumption. You don't have very many people going after you because it's number one worldview in, in most Western universities and your colleagues are on your side, et cetera, et cetera. But, but uh, here is the best philosophical atheist in the world. And, and we did debate the resurrection three times. And I'm sure he said it at one time. All three debates have been published. Uh, I'm sure he said extraordinary events require extraordinary evidence. But he never stayed on that subject for very long, because when we present some of that stuff, um, you know, Shroud of Turin is another subject that gets into that. Uh, mm -hmm. Here's an empirical quasi-photograph of what looks like a resurrection from the dead. And so there's just a lot of things in the world today, multiple healings, uh, healings with pre- and post-CAT scans, MRIs, and uh, x-rays. They're just, for people to just close their ears and eyes, say, yeah, you, have, you don't have anything. I don't have to listen to resurrection. Often it's a statement of faith, and often, very often, it's accompanied by a lot of anger. Mm. Well, you were so winsome and friendly with Dr. Flew that he actually became a theist. He didn't become a Christian, he became a theist largely because of you, Gary. Well, I, other people uh, dealt with him, too, so I'm not going right. to take the credit for that, but but Tony was a great guy, an Oxford-trained, Oxford professor and for a short time in his career, and other places around the world, and uh, he was impressed. The, the statement he kept making over and over again is, I had to go where the evidence led. And so mm -hmm. what he was saying was, the evidence certainly favored God's existence. Yeah, and that's why he wrote a book, There Is a God. And you right. can get that book. It's about 10 years, well, maybe 15 years old now. A great book by Anthony Flew, F-L-E-W. And yep. uh, Gary, as I say, has debated him on at least three occasions. Three. Yep. And to say that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, you know what an extraordinary claim is? An extraordinary claim is every single spiritual experience in the history of the world has been mistaken. That's what you have to believe if you're a naturalist, if you're an yep. atheist. You have to believe that every single claim of a spiritual experience in the world has been mistaken. Now, is that possible? Yes, it's possible. Is it plausible? No, probably not. No, you don't have you don't have any evidence for that claim. So here, here are the people saying you got to have extraordinary evidence. You have extraordinary claims. They have atheists have all sorts of extraordinary claims with no evidence for it. Anyway, you're listening to Cross Examined with Frank Turk. My guest is Dr. Gary Habermas. We're talking about the resurrection. We have more objections to the resurrection. We're going to get into, and don't forget about the course he's teaching. Go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses. You can join it. We're back in two. College campuses are hostile to the Christian faith, and three out of four young people walk away from the church once they go to college. That's why we go to college campuses and present I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist in the United States and even all over the world. When we do this, we don't charge students a dime. That's why we need your financial support. In fact, over the past couple of years, we've been able to grow dramatically because of your generous support. And 100% of your donations go to ministry. Zero 
100% go to building. So when you give to Cross-Examine, you'll be giving to help us go reach young people where they are. Would you consider giving today? Thank you so much, and thank you so much for what you've done already. Coming up this week on February 12th, I'll be at Flagstaff Christian Fellowship up in Flagstaff, Arizona. The next night, I'll be at Northern Arizona University. Anyone can come to that event, both these events, actually. Uh, the one at the Northern Arizona University will be live-streamed on our website, crossexamine.org, and also uh, on our uh, Facebook page. And uh, if you can like our Facebook page, crossexamine.org, that will help you see that. And then next weekend, uh, the 16th and 17th, I'll, I'll be at Mount Airy Bible Church in Mount Airy, Maryland, doing an event there Saturday night. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, preaching at the morning services, stealing from God, why atheists need God to make their case. And then another event that afternoon, completing I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. So hope any of you see guys, if you're out there anywhere in Arizona or you're near our nation's capital, Mount Airy, Maryland. Love to see you next week. I'm talking to my friend, Dr. Gary Habermas. My name's Frank Turek. Our website's crossexamined.org, crossexamined with a D on the end of it, .org. Gary's website, garyhabermas.com. A lot of free stuff up there at garyhabermas.com, so check that out. We're, to we're going through some of the objections that uh, are brought up against the resurrection. We've covered anything is more possible than a resurrection. We've covered the extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Let me ask you this, Gary. This is a bit more popular of an objection. Oh, uh, was everybody hallucinated uh, back back then in the first century? That's why they thought Jesus rose from the dead. What would you say to that? Yeah, and, and this is this is has one thing in, in uh, common with the the point you just raised, Frank. That that what's the likelihood that whenever you have a lot of people, and our earliest source, uh, a list of six resurrection appearances, three of them were to groups of people, one numbering uh, at least 11, another one being a la larger group, I mean, we don't know, but maybe we know it was more than 11, so may, uh, maybe 20, and the third one was numbered at 500, and when you start adding these numbers up, um, you're going to have, you know, just from what I said there, we're at about 550, 530, and you can say, yeah, they're all wrong. And your question, Frank, on, uh, yeah, they could be, but is it plausible? That's a great question. If if a dozen people, if 20 people, if 500 people claim to have seen Jesus at the same time, uh, I have a, a medical buddy friend with whom I've written an article on this. I've got a clinical psychologist buddy who's done research, and both of them have done research into the medical and psychological data going back, I think it was like 25 years, and there is not one documented case of a group hallucination. You hear a lot of stories, but mm. no documented cases of group hallucinations. And of course, that makes sense because, I mean, sharing an hallucination, which is something that the mind believes something so strongly that it produces an image, it's sort of like a dream. And we know two people don't share dreams. Um, so even two would be highly evidential against hallucination theories. There's many other problems 
But the biggest one is the group hallucinations. And I'll tell you what, when you talk to skeptics who know their stuff and you bring up group hallucinations, watch them squirm to explain <laughs> away these real early ones. They, mm-hmm. they do not brush them under the cover and say, oh, they're all, they're all mythological. They don't say that because the data for them are very strong. Uh, a second one, just to do a couple, a second one is that more than any other of the facts surrounding the um, death, burial, resurrection claim, the, the empty tomb has mm-hmm. over 20 evidences. And you go, yeah, taking the Bible as the Word of God. No, taking critics as the scholars. We're talking atheists agnostic, or other religious New Testament scholars. Their their area is New Testament, but they're not Christians. And their reasons, you can count their reasons, treat the material critically, and you'll get over 20 evidences for the empty tomb. The empty tomb is really tough on hallucinations, because as I ask my grad students, I'll say, is the hallucination theory an empty tomb view, or is it a a full tomb view. And of course it's a full tomb view, meaning whatever you put in is still going to be there. Um, so as a critic, you'd have to say, oh, well, hey, I didn't think about that. Uh, maybe tomb robbers got it. Okay. It's just like the naturalism question. Do you have any evidence for that? Uh, no, but it happens. Yes, it does. But do you have any evidence for that? Uh, no. So you're going to take any solution you can take to avoid this data. So those are two. Group hallucinations, uh, I mean, group appearances are problems for any kind of view of a group hallucination. And the empty tomb would be a reputation by itself. And by the way, Gary Habermas, who we're talking to right now, is going to cover all this in detail in the resurrection course. Just go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses. You'll see it there. And uh, you can ask Gary questions live via Zoom video on three occasions during that course. And it begins March 11th. So if you want to be a part of that, sign up for the premium version of that course. uh, And uh, you'll learn from the best in the world on the most important fact when it comes to showing Christianity is true in the world. The resurrection. So check that all out on our website, crossexamine.org. How about this uh, objection, Gary? You hear this quite a bit sometimes. Well, don't all religions have miracle claims? Aren't they just self-canceling? I mean, what's so special about the resurrection? Yeah, I love that one, because when critical scholars, and sometimes scholars do claim this, I mean, guys who know their stuff, but they don't know what they're asking in this question, or they wouldn't have asked it. Um, it depends on what's, what religious founder you're talking about. But Ed Yamauchi, he's, he's retired now from University of Miami of Ohio. He is an ancient historian. And he said that Jesus is the only founder of a major world religion who has miracles reported of him within a generation. Mm. Um, The interesting thing is when you say, well, what miracles do you have in mind? Well, I can give different names and and people who've said this, but it's kind of irrelevant. But I had one scholar say in print against me in a debate, he said, no, I don't believe in the resurrection because that would commit me to believe in Buddha's miracles. He literally (laughs) said that. And, uh-huh. and here's what I would want to say. Really? Buddhist miracles are reported in sources that are almost always 500 to 800 years after the source. Now, why would I believe an historical source? In fact, can you even have an historical source 
that's five to eight hundred years after the event. But if that's your case for Buddha, for Zoroaster, that the um, the theological documents for Zoroaster date almost a thousand years after he lived. The earliest copy of the Bhagavad Gita comes almost two thousand years after it was supposedly written. So when someone says, "Why should I believe all these other ones?" I would go, "Time out, time out." Let's talk about what the New Testament has, where even critics like Bart Ehrman, the atheist New Testament scholar, admits that we have sources for the resurrection within one to two years of the cross. One to two years after the cross. And you're going to put that up against a source from 500 years later, a source from 1,000 years later, and a third source from 2,000 years later? You're, you're not even being fair with data. So the data are good, except when you use it. And then you can use any old horrible source you want from hundreds of years later. It just doesn't cut it. Well, and then you point out that that's even admitted by one of the fiercest skeptics of Christianity, Bart Ehrman. And as you you've pointed out on this program before, when it comes to Dr. Ehrman, who teaches at UNC Chapel Hill, Gary, he, he knows the data. But when he tries to explain, when he tries to come up with a naturalistic explanation for the resurrection, I mean, he doesn't believe in the resurrection, but he doesn't have any other explanation either, does he? Yeah, if I'm mistaken, in one of his latest books, and I hope I'm citing him correctly, in one of his latest books he said he's not going to go that route anymore, and he's not going to use naturalistic theories, because he says the earlier thing you said. He said anything is more likely than a resurrection. Why? Because he's an atheist, there's no naturalism. So, number one, I'd like him to prove naturalism. Number two, I'd like him to prove there's no God. Then he could give his theory based on his evidence, but... So he's not going to take one. And he's got a bombastic sentence in this book that's really incredible. He says, you cannot prove a miracle like the resurrection with history alone. Here's the rest of the sentence. But neither can you disprove it. Hmm. Now, that's not everything a Christian wants. But for a, I think, honest critic like Bart Ehrman, I think there's a lot of signs in his book that he's an honest critic. For him to admit that uh, you can't prove the resurrection, but neither can you disprove it. I'd say, good, let's start on a level playing field and talk about the data. And if he says, well, it's not level, it's not a level playing field, because uh, there's no God or something like that, well, then the, there we are again. Prove naturalism is true, and let's move from there. But I think that's pretty fair to say the resurrection can't, dis- the history can't disprove the resurrection either. So, Naturalistic theories are at a low right now. Most critics do not go there. Well, let's go back to the the extraordinary claims. It's not an extraordinary claim to say somebody's dead. It's not an extraordinary claim to say somebody's now alive. So, I mean, it's not hard to figure out if somebody's dead or alive. If Jesus was once dead and then he's alive, the only question you have to answer is what caused him to go from being dead to alive? Is there any yep. other naturalistic way of explaining how he yep. could have and gone if, from dead if, to alive? What if I were there? What if I were the officiating minister uh-huh. when the casket was lowered in the ground? And as has happened with me when I've done funerals, uh, the funeral directors come in and put all the linens inside the casket and and the body's right there, you're standing right there with it. Close the top, lock the top, you get in the hearse with it. You see it go to the cemetery. You see it taken out. You see it go into the ground. And if you want to stick around, you can see it buried. 
we, we know what a buried person is. Now, what if I see that person at the grocery store in a few days buying a couple loaves of bread? Now, I, I mean, I think you raised a really good point there. There's two very common parts to this. We see dead people, and we see living people. And we have evidence for what a dead person is. And, of course, that person's been embalmed. So if they weren't dead, they're dead now. And, and we know what a living person is, because we've maybe seen this guy buy bread many times. I just want to know if they're the same person. We've got something to talk about. And I think that is a great illustration, because that is the case with the resurrection. We're talking to my friend Dr. Gary Habermas, the world-renowned expert on the resurrection. He's teaching a new course for us. Just go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses. You'll see it. It begins March 11th, and it's a live course in the sense that you'll have several opportunities to ask Gary questions live via Zoom video, face-to-face. If you want to be a part of it, you got to sign up soon because we limit the number of uh, registrants or students in the class so you have enough time to ask questions. Everyone gets an opportunity to ask questions to Gary. Just check that out, crossexamine.org, online courses. And we got more with Gary right after this break, so you don't want to go away. I'm going to ask him some questions that probably don't get asked very often, so don't go away. We're back in two. If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find more. Just type cross-examine or Frank Turek on the search bar. Also, visit our website where we add new videos, articles, and free resources daily. Welcome back to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. By the way, I failed to mention, not only is Gary's course coming up, a brand new Spanish version of I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist is starting this week. You still have time to sign up if you want to be a part of it. My friend and colleague Jorge Gil is teaching it in Espanol, and all of the videos are subtitled in Espanol. So if you want to be a part of that course, you can as well. That's I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist in Spanish. Coming up uh, right after Gary's course, we're doing a course on the essentials of Christianity. I'll be teaching that. All this will be on our website here soon. In fact, uh, Jorge's class and Gary's class are already up there. So if you want to be a part of those, go to crossexamine.org, click on uh, click on online courses, and you can see them all there. There are several other courses up there that you can take anytime you want as well. They're self-paced courses, so check those out. Now, we're talking about the resurrection with my friend Dr. Gary Habermas right now. And Gary, i got to ask you this question. This question hardly ever gets asked, but I actually had a listener... Uh, email me and wanted the answer to this question. It's a good question. Uh, I mean, you talk a lot about historical evidence for the resurrection. It's excellent evidence and all this. But the, the, the questioner asked this, why do we have to rely on historical data? Why doesn't the resurrected Jesus just appear to everyone right now? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I remember years ago, uh, Peter Kreeft, uh, K-R-E-E-F-T, a very well-known uh, writer in the area of philosophy religion, very well published, and he and I were writing letters uh, probably 30 years ago, and, and I asked him that. I said, what do you think? He's a C.S. Lewis uh, specialist, and he said, he said, as many people have said, he said, God gives us enough evidence to convince, not enough evidence to coerce. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we, we play with a little phrase once in a while, uh, you know, we debate this. Uh, you know, it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. And you ask, what good would God gain from coercing belief? Do I want a 
guy or a gal, any of us, would we like somebody to marry us because we have some magic potion and we control the situation and we make them do it? Sometimes you can get you can get desperate and you're willing to try anything, <laughs> but most of the time, people prefer love that comes naturally and devotion that comes naturally where you're not twisting someone's arm up their back and you don't hold them prisoner. I, I think that that's largely true with God, and he doesn't force us into the kingdom. He, he's got an advantage on us. Um, you know, he's like he's uh, seven foot tall or weighs 500 pounds, and he's going to fight a guy who's five and a half feet tall. I mean, it's just not fair, especially when he knows all the moves. And, and that, that's the odds of God dealing with, with uh, little, you know, us out there. And I think he doesn't want to, I don't think he wants to force us. I don't think he has any desire to put as much evidence out there. He wants willing commitment. And you go, well, how do you know that? Because that's what he does. In fact, when Jesus appeared to Thomas, and Thomas said, I won't believe until I see him, to paraphrase Jesus, he basically said, Thomas, I'm showing, I'm showing myself to you because you requested it. But blessed are those who don't see and still believe. Jesus also said, if you don't believe me for my word's sake, believe me for my work's sake. And in that context, works means miracles. Jesus preferred people to take him at his word's sake. He preferred Thomas to believe him for his word's sake. So I think that's the answer to this question. God wants willing followers, not forced or coerced followers. Yeah, if he overwhelmed our free will, we couldn't love him, as you mentioned, Gary. It would be coerced. What good is free will if you're going to overpower it? Right, right. And, and it's interesting, too, and I, I, let me ask you this, Gary, because when I look at somebody like Bart Ehrman, who knows the evidence quite well, being a scholar himself, he doesn't say he disbelieves in Christianity because there's inadequate evidence for the resurrection or there's errors in the Bible or any of these things. He admits that, at least what he says anyway, is that he thinks God can't exist because there's too much evil in the world. Well, of course, we could have a whole program on that that, you know, evil couldn't exist unless good existed, and good couldn't exist unless God existed. So he's it, that's an invalid objection as well. But it's not like there are people running around saying, well, there's just not enough evidence for the resurrection. Or do you find a lot of people that honestly say that, Gary? I mean, in the field of New Testament scholarship, are they saying there's not enough evidence? Yeah, to me, I, I've written uh, three books on doubt, and I was forced to some different positions than the one I started with, because I used to think, Frank, a long time ago, I was a skeptic. I went through some, I, I came very close, very close to becoming a Buddhist one time. In fact, I told my mother, I already had a PhD, so I wasn't so wet behind the ears, teenager or something. Um, I told my mother, um, I thought I was probably a few months away from becoming a Buddhist. And, and when I was in my skeptical days, I never... I debated Christians all the time, and I never, to my remembrance, never used the problem of evil. And I didn't because I thought that they had too many outs. They had too many brilliant comebacks that would get me in a spot I didn't want to be in. One example would be um, Alvin Plantinga's brilliant, brilliant little book, God, Freedom, and Evil, where he argues the... um, libertarian free will, which basically 
saying I could have done otherwise. I could have made, you know, I went to Harvard, but I could have gone to Yale. I mean, that's libertarian free will to have choices. And he uses that to great extent to the against the uh, atheist, J.L. Mackey and others, defending the problem of evil. And I wouldn't come back with the problem of evil because I thought they had too many options. And Planicus is a great one. Um, I just don't think it's a good comeback. Some people get hurt worse than others. And to me, that kind of doubt is not factual doubt. That kind of doubt is volitional doubt. That When you're hurt, that's why, in my opinion, I want to be, Frank, I want to be as kind as I can when I say this, but I talk a lot of times to atheists. I've had more conversations at universities and in blogs and, well, I, I won't, just hundreds. And there is a lot of anger among atheists and naturalists. To me, the, the pain and suffering argument they use is their own, because mm. they're hurting. But because you're hurting doesn't mean you have the right track on the evidence. There's no connection between those two arguments. And it's an emotional argument. Right. I would say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Stop emoting. You're emoting all over me, okay? Just stop and answer my factual questions. I didn't ask you, do you want there to be a God? I didn't ask you what you, you know, you know, before. There have been some philosophers who say, I don't believe it because I don't want to. And uh, Nagel is a great example of that. Okay, so don't tell me what you don't want. Tell me how you answer the data. So don't use emotional reasons against factual evidences. Well, Gary, you... You could have had an emotional reason to reject Christianity when your wife Debbie died of yeah. 43 years old a number of years ago, yeah. and yet that did not push you away from God, did it? No. In fact, when she was sick and our four children were home and our youngest was was uh, had just turned nine years old, um, and two of them came to me up to me after the funeral and said, I just lost my closest friend. That's really something for a, for a child to say about their parent. But... Uh, yeah, it was pretty rough, and I thought to myself during that time, I thought, great. It's not enough that that Debbie's dying, and not enough that the kids need lunches every day and clean clothes and need help with their homework at night, and, oh yeah, not enough that I'm a professor and need to do my own work. Uh, probably my doubts are going to come back. Mm. And, uh, Frank, they never did. For wow. good or for ill, they never did. I know I was a candidate for it because I went through it for uh, between 10 and 20 years, 10 straight years, and another 10 years off and on. and uh, but, but it never came back, thank the Lord. I, in fact, I was calmer and more sure of my faith during the time she was sick than I ever was any other time in my life. Well, Gary, it's always a pleasure having you on. You're such a wealth of uh, not only facts but compassion. And I know that uh, you're going to express the same in this course you're teaching again. Give us... Give us a quick overview of what you're covering in the resurrection course that starts March 11th, the online course. Well, you know what? For the listeners, we, you and I didn't plan this ahead of time, but I would end uh, this program by saying, by the way you started it, bring it, mm. bring it around for a full circle. And I would say the importance of this course, the importance of this topic, the importance of this, uh, this program is because the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus are true. If he's the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead, 
everything else follows. Yeah. And I use that to illustrate, is to say, look at Zondervan and InterVarsity, and there are a few other odd publishers, but especially those two. I understand that together, they've done over 50, 50, three, four, and five used books. Christians realize that there are a lot of options to a lot of our hardest questions, including why is there suffering? And uh, do I have free will or not? And there's three, four, and five views. We don't have to have the same view. But on what we call the fundamentals, Christians should agree on those. There's only about a dozen of them. But the center is the deity, death, resurrection of Jesus is true. If it is true, I have an eternity. I literally have an eternity to ask my toughest questions. Mm. But if it's true, I know enough to know that eternal life is there. I know enough to answer my deepest questions. Is there meaning in the world? Does ethics make sense? Is there a God? Is Jesus his son? So we are right at the, the kernel here. And if somebody says, yeah, but what about creation? Yeah, what about the end of the world? I'll say, hey, some other time. Can we solve this question right now so that we can talk about those other things? That's right. Because it really is the center of faith. And that's why I think we're doing this program. That's why we both love this topic. That's why we're doing the course with your group. Wonderful, Gary. That's Gary Haberman. If you want to take the course with him, go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses, and begins March 11th. You can ask him questions live if you take the premium version. Check it out there, friend. Gary Haberman's The Resurrection. Also, don't forget, I'll be in Flagstaff, Arizona this week and Mount Airy, Maryland on the weekend. See you next time. We hope you got a lot of value out of this episode. If you think our podcast needs to reach more people, here's what you can do to help. Go to iTunes and type Cross-Examined Official Podcast, four words in the search bar, and leave us a five-star rating. It'll take you less than five seconds. And if you have a few more seconds to spare, leave us a positive review. The best reviews will be featured on future episodes. You can also listen on Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. God bless.